finished this amazing day. Our friends all got to see each other. We got to share this amazing music. And one of the girls on her way out stops dead in her tracks. And she's like, guys, where's my phone? And so we do like the whole, like, check the pockets, check the bag, everything else. And she gives me her bag to go look through it because she looked through it. I reach my hand through and it like goes through the bottom of the bag because they've been cut open. 10 seconds later, another girl in the group goes, wait, where's my phone? And so out of that, we had the idea for the lunchbox hydration pack. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. Today's podcast is sponsored by Privy. They have the number one most reviewed app on the Shopify app store and a necessity if you want to grow your e-commerce business. Now, before I started using Privy on all of my Shopify stores, I was seeing maybe a 1% conversion rate because I was spending so much time and money driving traffic to my store and not capturing any customer information. And after Privy, that all changed. Now my store converts at 3% plus, sometimes in the holidays, even as high as 5 or 6%. And it's because Privy helps me capture customer emails on my site and then allows me to go and actually use email flows to remind them to finish their purchase. So now I'm not just burning money on Facebook and Google ads. If you run an e-commerce store today, you literally cannot afford to not be using Privy. Head on over to privy.com slash next generation for your free trial today. All right, we're live. What's going on, Tom? What's going on, fellas? How are we doing? Doing good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, dude, you've got like an awesome background. You're running a sweet business. Like, I feel like you're you're running the business that like most people in college want to go and be running because like not only does it have great business success, but you're also doing like crazy lifestyle stuff as well. Um, I don't know why I wanted this to just be like the first question I asked, but like just to kind of like set the tone, like how many raves slash festivals have you been to? Oh God. Uh, I guess that's the right question, right? It's like, you know, you can't really be the person who's developing products in that space unless you've got some experience going to those events. Uh, so in terms of festivals, I think Lifetime, uh, well over 50. And then in yeah. terms of like smaller shows, I mean, we're, we're, we're into the hundreds, right? It's, it's very easy to get, you know, especially when I was in my, in my early 20s, two in a weekend, three in a week. It's just you stack them up for years on end. And you, get, you get the kill count up. Do you have a favorite one? Uh, so it, it's really kind of category dependent. Um, so if you are really passionate about like large outdoor immersive events and kind of festivals like Electric Forest are absolutely standout. If you like a music showcase, uh, you go to an ultra where at the beginning of the year where DJs have been working on their newest tracks for the entire and fall and winter. And if you like things kind of in between international, you've got big events like Tomorrowland in Belgium, where again, it's like a big experience, but it's also great for music. And so it really depends on the bucket specifically. Uh, but how about you guys? Have you been to any of the major events in the US or the world at large? I, I personally, I, mean, I think Gia's been to Lala. I went to, yeah, Lollapalooza Berlin, which not as big as the one in the US, but also Blast is like in the old Olympic stadium stuff that they had set up. So I've yeah, done, that was a good time. I, mean, I feel like I haven't done like the rave stuff. I've done like Boston Calling, Austin City Limits, like big, like, yeah. like festivals. was a blast. Yeah, yeah, super fun. But like, I haven't been to like the Miami Ultras or anything like that out of the world. Yet. 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 Uh, good, good. <laughs> Good caveat there. Um, okay, so let's let's th- transition a little bit now to like the business you're running. So talk to us a little bit about Lunchbox, like where the idea came from and also like how you kind of like started to grow to where it is today. Yeah, so I think for, for just everyone's context, what Lunchbox effectively is, is an ecosystem of products designed to improve live event experiences. Um, and so we kind of realized in 2018, uh, there was like this huge delta between the experiences that people were paying for and then the products that were helping to make those experiences great. So let's flash back to 2018. It's uh, end of March, Ultra Music Festival in Miami. And over the course of one event day, again, keeping in mind, People are flying from all over the country, putting thousands of dollars into, you know, flights, hotels, rental cars, whatever, uh, seeing all their friends, they've been looking forward to this three, four months. This is like the definition of a peak experience. And on a Saturday of, uh, of Ultra, uh, three things kind of happened that kind of set the flags off, if you will. Uh, part one was going through security. Uh, the bags that we had, we had checked them against the security restrictions and we basically went to the security line and it was up to like a guard's opinion that, ah, no, these bags don't actually work. It's like, well, they do. Like, here's the thing. And it was just like, no, bro, like either you drop it or you're not coming in. So we threw out, we threw out our bags at the, uh, at the gate and we're like, all right, crap. And then again, this is Miami, right? You got sunscreen. I got a camera, I got lenses and full disclosure, I was, you know, it, it is Miami. So I was wearing a relatively short bathing suit that only had one pocket in the back. So I got my wallet, my phone stuffed in this back pocket. And the problem is that, you know, it's, that's not 
ideal at all. And so I'm shoving all my, the rest of my items into my friend's tiny little camelback, which is one of the little, uh, you know, half a, half a liter darts, uh, which is the name of the product. I was like, okay, this, this just blows, but we're, okay, we're going in losing a little bit of momentum on the day, but all right, fine. We're going into an amazing festival. Can't complain. Middle of the day, we're heading over to a DJ called Lost Kings. He's playing at the ultra worldwide stage, which is like this big, uh, it's almost like a big elliptical. You look up and like, they've got screens on every single panel. And while we're getting ready to go to our, one of the, the DJs, we're like, right, we want to go see these guys. Uh, we do a little water refill as a group. And again, festival is usually our buddy system. So I go over with this girl to the water lines and water lines are around the block, around the corner, up the hill. We're like, what? So of course we wait in it. Like it's the Miami heat and <laughs> shout out, uh, shout out to Dwayne Wade, but no, no pun intended. basically the, yeah, exactly. Um, but the Miami heat is uh, 95, hundred degrees going off the concrete. You need water to survive this thing. And so we, we wait in the line for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I'm just like, what is taking so long? And so we get to the front of the line and not only are there like 15 lines all converging in one spot, everyone has needs like four pairs of hands and like you plus a friend to go refill the hydration packs that they bring to the festival, which is kind of like the cultural thing to do. So, you know, hand one is holding onto the bag. Hand two is holding onto the hydration bladder. Hand three is unscrewing the hydration bladder. And hand four is pressing the nozzle on the water thing. And it's like, okay, well, how do you do that without jamming up traffic? And so anyway, we get back and wouldn't you know it, we've missed the DJ that we were actually trying to see after all that. So it's like, all right, cool. We paid for this amazing experience. Now what? So flash forward to the end of the day, I think the chain smokers are finishing our main stage. Uh, this is this is when they were still getting a little bit you know, suspicious with their music, but you know, is this, still, like, is this like when, still, when Closer just came out? It was then, and it's like a, like a couple of years later, it's like, all right, well, you know, where are we? But you know, still, it was still solid. Um, and as we're walking out, you know, we finished this amazing day. Our friends all got to see each other. We got to share this amazing music. And one of the girls on her way out stops dead in her tracks. Like the blood is coming out of her face. And she's like, guys, where's my phone? And so we do like the whole, like, check the pockets, check the bag, everything else. And she gives me her bag to go look through it because she looked through it. I reach my hand through and it like goes through the bottom of the bag because they've been cut open and all the belongings have just been yanked. And like, like clockwork, 10 seconds later, another girl in the group goes, wait, where's my phone? And oh, she had had no. one yanked out of her back pocket. And so it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, these people had, you know, saved up, they had planned ahead. They had had this circled on the calendar as their big spring event for three, four months, but the experience didn't live up to what actually happened. And so out of that, we kind of had the, uh, the idea for the Lunchbox Hydration Pack, which was an anti-theft and customizable hydration pack built specifically to solve the pain points that you might experience at a large outdoor gathering, whether it's a festival, a rave, uh, a large show, a sporting arena, whatever. And so as a result, we ended up going into kind of an interview phase for three, four months to figure out, you know, what actually needs to be in this, um, what's junk and what's needed to have. And we ended up landing on uh, basically the, the key elements of like, I need to be anti-theft because people want to achieve peace of mind in the crowd. We needed to somehow innovate around how a hydration pack refills because the traditional method great if you're going on a four-hour hike and you're in your kitchen refilling water not so great you have a hundred people behind you and you're racing to go see music and then finally there's an element of individuality nobody wants to keep buying a new bag for a new look so how do you create some sort of interchangeable element within this so we combined all those right brought in some of the best best and well-known outdoor materials out there like ripstop nylons ballistic nylons certain threads dosh air meshes ykk zippers like Festival stuff is normally built with super, super low quality because they're trying to do it fast fashion style, right? Get it out, sell it, mark it up, whatever. And we were like, no, like, how do we build the best possible product to solve and improve the live event experience? So as a result, um, we ended up coming up with the Lunchbox Hydration Pack with all these different features. We um, kickstarted, I think, in the beginning of uh, in December in 2018, which in itself is a crazy story. Um, we were fully funded within 24 hours. And then our first product drop hit before EDC Las Vegas in 2019, which is kind of like the biggest festival in that space. And um, the Lunchbox fan began then. That's an awesome story, especially with, with being so successful on Kickstarter. A lot of people, I think, tend to have trouble in that beginning phase of actually, you know, hey, okay, you know what the product should have, right? You, you, you list it out. You want it to be theft-proof, easy to refill, et cetera. How did you go from that idea to actual execution? Did you just find a supplier on Alibaba, message them and go back and forth? Or was there a little bit more uh, involved in that process? Yeah, no, it couldn't, couldn't have been more different than the Alibaba route. Um, so what we launched with was the version 11 of our product. 
by that point, there had been 10 samples up until that point. And um, I think for me, it was like, all right, so I, I, I didn't start Lunchbox with, with a lot of money. I mean, the whole thing started with less than 25,000. Um, and that was, uh, and that was just like the limit. And so, you know, going into it, I really only had a few big shots I could take before I consumed that entire bank. Right. And so the question was, all right, how do I prove that these features are buildable before I go commission a really good design firm to like polish up the final product? The risk is if you have them polish off the final product, when not final, then boom, you're, you're 25 is done and you're, and, and you've lost just because you've, you've spent poorly. So I started on a website called makersrow.com and I was looking for pattern makers and sample makers that could convert designs that I had sketched out into a canvas or similar material format. So we could actually see like, how does this behave? How does it wear? How do I as a user actually like leverage the different points of the bag? How do I get into it? And so I had some questions, right? And this is also at the same time where we were like, okay, like what are the features we need to have here? Like to have solar panels because the people under the sun does that make sense we want that uh do we want to have lights in the pack i don't know maybe um and so the question here was like how do we figure out the thing that we need to build before we invest resources into building that thing so samples one two and three were literally with like this old italian dude in uh in new york named dario where i would i would go to his office you know late late in the afternoon and we would just go you know canvas samples that were basically like burlap sacks, but they had a top compartment, bottom compartment, a side refill port, and then a, a, like a skin uh, that was attached to the outside. And then we would basically wear that, get it in front of people, get feedback, build the next canvas sample, come back, build the next canvas sample. We're bringing in the, the width, we're looking at the right length. It's just like, we didn't know any of these things. And so we had to build it to understand, but all three or four of those first samples, we did that for less than 5,000, right? And so then at that point, we're like, all right, cool. Like we're actually starting to validate some of these things. All right, we're gonna be, we're gonna hit, Achieve anti-theft by inverting the zippers on the pack so they're touching your bag. All right, cool. We've just solved anti-theft. With the, the hydration refill port, okay, we realized if we put it on the side and we rotate the pack, all right, great. There's a way to access that without having to take it off. Um, the skins, everything else, those are cosmetic things that come later. So version five was building that into nylon. And we took that sample to Firefly Music Festival in 2018, which is in Dover, Delaware. And basically, instead of going to the festival, I was like, all right, you're telling me that I have a thousand people in my captive audience in the campsites. So I just went campsite to campsite to campsite, took photos, tried on, here's our Instagram, literally just hit the, like that entire campsite. But I got really crucial feedback, right? Women said, oh, I don't really like how it, how it hits my shoulders. Certain men were like, I don't like how much, how much it jumps when I, when I bounce around. We got that back and we built the V6, right? Which has been like the, the next nylon prototype. At this point, we're starting to get close to like the theme of the lunchbox, but it, like, it, it's still like the bulky, like, the 12-year-old version, it hasn't quite glowed up yet. And so at that point, we we're like, all right, cool. Now it's time to really turn this into the factory step of what's called a tech pack, which is how you communicate the design specifications to a production partner. So weirdly enough, through a friend of a friend, I get connected to somebody who designed luxury bags, and they had a designer in the, uh, in the office that took a liking to the project. I was like, listen, why don't we do a little side thing? Have you basically write these things out? And then V7, which was produced off of the specifications, took a lot of the learnings, but really put them in one place. V8 was when we started to realize, all right, this thing is good, but it can be better. And that's where we brought in uh, a design agency to really polish this thing up. And, that, and these people are like, incredible because they had built the, the Burton snowboard line. They had worked with a couple other major brands like Gregory. And so like, you know, I'm like, hey, here's this idea. And they immediately dive in. They're like, well, this is the type of stitch that we need to have to make sure that, that things don't yank out. Here are the bar tacks we need to have on the strap to minimize stress. It's like the things you don't know. And so when we come back to like the 25,000, right? It's like, that was the single largest investment of that 25. But because we had spent so many samples getting that right, we knew that that money was gonna go far. That design agency ended up actually knowing the suppliers who did the Burton and Gregory bags. So they connected us, produced in, uh, in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And I ended up flying over uh, a little ahead of the Kickstarter and we did version nine, 10 and 11 in a three-day stretch. I threw three of them in my bag. I flew back to New York, grabbed a videographer, met eight people in Echo Stage in DC where we shot the Kickstarter. And literally three days after getting those samples, we were shooting. And then five days after that, we had a funded Kickstarter. Dude, that's, that's a lot. Okay, you're right. Complete opposite of the Alibaba <laughs> of cool, let's grab these, slap a logo on it and then start selling it. What I think about now as I hear like all 11 iterations of that, everything from like, 
literally what are the materials to user testing to design polishing and all that kind of stuff like the only thing that's going through my head this whole time is like are you full-time on this or are you still working like at a different job or like what were you doing prior to lunchbox and like how much of that did you kind of use to like bootstrap and like fund your way through lunchbox and at what point did you kind of go all in on it did you like quit your job and launch it or did you launch it get some sales and then decide to quit so basically the at the time in early 2018 i was working for a venture studio in washington dc from a wonderful entrepreneur uh named drew Virginia, uh, who's actually the co-founders of a company called latch which is a public company today and you know the reason i was i, I reached out to him in the first place is because I, I, I wanted to learn from somebody who had been at, been there done that uh and understand like structurally how he thought and so, you know, I ended up spending uh, a little over about a year and a half there with working with them and on my nights and weekends from April 1st, 2018, up until I'd say middle of November, 2018, uh, I was still full time with them. So I was just going super late, like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, all my weekends would go into this. And I was just like perpetually in a WeWork for, for a year straight. Um, didn't have much of a social life, didn't have much of a dating life. Like that was just the thing that I dropped because I wanted to pick this up. And then the point that I was kind of building towards is like, you know, I was, I was burning, right? I, like, I, I had my number, I, I gave myself a budget and I was burning that, burning that, burning that. And there was no payback unless it worked. And I think the question I had is like, okay, cool. This is a cool idea, but it doesn't really matter unless you have something that solves the problem you set out to solve. And the moment that I mentally committed was probably the first week of November when I was holding the first samples that the factory produced. And I was like, oh, this solves it. And I think that gave me the confidence to then go to Drew by the time and say, hey, listen, you know, I have a month and month and a half to go spin up a full Kickstarter and a marketing campaign. There's no way I can do this while being full time. I actually brought him on as an advisor of the company as a thank you for like the tutor, the tutelage and the mentorship. And I said, listen, like here's my two weeks notice. I'll, I'll basically figure out whatever we need to do to to get you guys on track. And then I left to go launch Kickstarter and kind of went all in at that point. So that was the, that was the transition. So I made the leap once I had, once I felt like I had good enough information to make that jump, but not a moment before then. And I don't think I would have changed that in hindsight. An awesome relationship with your employer, right? When, when they can get behind a project you're working on, you can bring them in for advice and it's not, you know, contentious with, Hey, you know, why, why are you leaving, et cetera. When, when you were building the Kickstarter campaign, what, what was that like, right? How did you manage to raise all the money? Were you hiring agencies? Did you hire, you know, a professional videographer or what were some of the big key aspects you think that really allowed you to become successful in actually raising all the money you had set out to raise? Yeah, so I'm actually very against agencies on Kickstarters. I think Kickstarter rewards authentic storytelling and then agencies put you into a boilerplate process. So those things are very antithetical in my eyes. Um, we had a, uh, a girl on our team named Meredith, who uh, later on actually became a co-founder of the business, who was critical in terms of a lot of the strategy. I ran point a lot of the assets. Um, the, the thing is, the, the live event community, it mobilizes and brings a lot of wonderful people into the game and into the scene. And so a lot of people just like love the idea. They wanted this to exist. And so they volunteered their time to help bring it to life. And so, yes, we, we hired a videographer to do the shots, but like, you know, I was sitting with him for three days constructing the edit, right? We had people come in to help with, you know, photography, staging, whatever else, coming up with these scenes. And we basically like, you know, came up with our shot, came up with the assets we're going to need, let that kind of create the foundation of our creative request, and then found the resources in place and the venue, uh, which was Echo Stage, one of the, one of the greatest indoor venues in the U.S. Uh, to kind of bring that all that together. But then that was a fully in-house managed process. And at the time, I didn't have a lot of production experience. Right now, I'm like, all right, you know, producing my sleep. But uh, I didn't have any experience at the time. I was just like, yeah, this is kind of how I do it. And then we made sure there were people who were good enough partners in the room and also being quite selective in terms of the partner who were let in the room, recognizing that, you know, whoever is impacting the project is ultimately how the project's going to turn out. So you kind of got to be careful about who you get involved. But yeah, don't do, don't do the agency thing on Kickstarter. I, I've, I've gone that route before and... No, it's just the, the, the out, it's just not needed. If you can do it in-house, like let the soul of the brand be the Kickstarter, not an agency's perspective of that. So fast forward for us a little bit now, we've heard about the founding story where you got the idea for the product. We heard about um, how you actually went and developed the product. Now, what we always like to kind of do, and you don't have to talk sales numbers or anything like that here, but like give people an idea in terms of like where Lunchbox is at today, whether it's like employee count or like you can maybe talk about like representation at different festivals and things like that. Because I think that's always really the fun part now. It's like someone listening to this and they're thinking, 
cool. You made a good product. Like the product is there. Or is anyone buying it now? Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, otherwise, otherwise, my full-time job is, is at risk. But the uh, um, so Lunchbox has grown a lot since 2019, including surviving a pandemic. Um, you know, we have a team of over 10 people in eight different states. Um, you know, our, we're pretty comfortably going to hit seven figures, um, you know, consistently and hopefully grow into, into eight within three to four years. Um, the ecosystem itself has been fully built out. So we started with our lunchbox hydration pack, uh, with not a lot of accessories to support that. Uh, and our AOV at the time was still hovering around the cost of the product. Uh, now it's significantly higher because people are coming in for their, their one big purchase before festival season. And so in addition, we've released the sling pack meant for kind of like hybrid concert shows, the snack pack, which is our, our take on a modernized fanny pack that helps to protect your phone from theft. And it's easy to bring all the stuff you need into a music experience. So is we've that, got three. Is that the uh, one that you were wearing in Denver? Uh, it's the one I was wearing in Denver. Yeah. For anyone listening, uh, Tom and I got drinks in Denver a couple of weeks ago and it's sweet. So you should go and buy one. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, even after that, right, we've had so many interesting community members actually suggest and, and, and invite more products into the ecosystem. So now, you know, through a partnership with a community member, we developed the Dream LED Skin, which is a digital panel that's sound and beat responsive. So imagine like in the background that the beat's going boom, boom, boom. Your lunchbox is like an explosion of lights against every single beat. And so we've really built out this whole ecosystem and that whole ecosystem is most importantly propelled by the community, which we call the Lunchbox fam, which are your diehard event goers uh, around the around the US specifically and around the world generally. And so what's interesting about Lunchbox as a business period is that, you know, we build products that make your event experiences really great. People who love event experiences want to have their experiences be great. They also want their friends to have great experiences. So they share, they refer, they talk about us. And so over 90% of our sales are all driven organically. We don't spend on paid other than Google trademark capture and Google shopping uh, because we don't have to. So, you know, our whole thesis has been build the best product for a mobilized community, do whatever we can to drive value for that community. Make sure you're serving them content that isn't sales related. You're doing it just because it's the right thing to do. And if they like it, they're going to share. And that has kind of created a very important community viral loop that has been kind of the essence and core of our growth over the last three years. Did you know it was going to be community first before you really started launching the business? Was that, was that a key aspect or did it just kind of fall into place where you realized how diehard most of these fans were and how strong that referral basis was? That's a great question. Um, so I, I actually I was talking to Nick Sharma about this three or four weeks ago, uh, about like when do brands know they have community? And where we kind of landed was, you know, most brands don't realize they have community until after they've launched the product. Um, and I think for us, it was a kind of a case of like, we knew community was important, but we didn't know how important. So, you know, in the end of 2018, one of the things that was most important to get our launch list together was there was a, a, an event called Homebase, which was like the hotel resort partner of EDC Orlando, where you've got 150,000 people a day hitting that event in our niche, right? So I basically walked around flyering people, knocking on doors, passing things out, just telling the story to anybody I could. And that helped us get over a thousand emails from that one event alone. And then so that, that email list helped us to launch to our, our, you know, our first, uh, first stock out day. And so again, like the reason those people were interested was because there was this big community around that. It wasn't a community around our brand, it was the community around live events, right? And so let's flash forward to 2019, which is again, I think the most important community stretch for us. It's EDC Las Vegas. We've just delivered over a thousand units to one specific festival. And for the first time, you know, lunchboxes are in the crowd. They're easy to spot because they, they, they light up at night. They're easy to see during the day because you can see like in a very specific shape, they have, they have a very unique profile, which is very intentional. Um, and again, the people who own them are self-selecting to be the top of the space, right? They, they care and they're willing to invest more than the average festival goer. So, you know, I ended up taking a shit ton of Red Bull and for three days with a videographer found every single lunchbox in the crowd. And I told every single person, I would tap them on the shoulder, be like, hey, nice lunchbox. Um, what's up, lunchbox fam? Whenever you see another lunchbox, you got to go say, hi, what's up, lunchbox fam? Introduce yourself as the world's best icebreaker. And by the end of that festival, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, these like micro interactions where like the lunchbox fan thing just got picked up. And so literally imagine, you know, Jenny on one, the one side of the group and Andrew on the other and one yelled, what's up lunchbox fam? Everybody in the middle of that group sandwich is like, well, what's lunchbox? And so the, the whole idea was like, 
recognizing that community connected people. But even then, it has been such an iterative process. And you know, anybody who thinks they have a crystal ball and they can plan community day one, um, they're usually wrong and they're probably gonna fail. Um, but if you understand that much like brand, community is iterative, it is organic, it grows and expands naturally, um, you'll understand your moments and opportunities to seize that. Dude, you literally invented the Jeep wave for festivals. Like, like if anyone listening to this, like you drive by another Jeep, you're driving Jeep, you just like throw up two fingers. You're like, hey, we have the same car. And then you keep on driving. Uh, like that's basically what you do for festivals. And, you know, you kind of answered my next question that I was going to ask because I hear the word community thrown around all the time in e-commerce now. And I'll be honest, the majority of the time I just roll my eyes and I'm like, ah, like, you, what you really mean to say is you have a newsletter list and you have like a few influences on retainer. But like when you have people creating organic relationships because of your product, because that is the commonality that brings people together. Yeah, that's community. Like, like and I, I think it's one of those things that people roll their eyes around, around it because it's very tough to measure and it's very like a very intangible thing. But it's also one of those things where like you're not running Facebook ads and you're still driving a shit ton of sales because people are talking about your product without you being in there. Um, and I think it's one of those things that you can you only realize you have it, like you said, after you have it. Like it, it's a very iterative process. And I think for anyone that wants to see an example of that, if you go check out Tom's uh, Twitter page, that photo is wildly impressive of just like I don't know if you've seen yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's basically it basically um, looks like a fraternity formal where like everyone's there and just like crowded at the end of the <laughs> weekend, a little hungover, a little, probably a little drunk still, and they're all just like holding up flags at festival things and holding up Tom's gear. Like that's exactly what it is. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know our, our meetups have been explosive lately. I mean that meetup was 250 people who wanted to come out of their festival. They had to spend some time with us. Uh, and and Connor, I think you're spot on, right? Community as a buzzword gets thrown around all the time. You know, comment on an Instagram post is not community. Your newsletter, it ain't community. Community is when people wake up in the, in, in the morning that day and they're like, okay, you know, what is, what is this brand up to? What is this community up to? Or they're texting people who they've made relationships through thanks to that brand. And so you can kind of define it as a level of interpersonal relationships more so than it's like engagement rates on social or the size of your email list. Um, and a lot of people, you know, especially econ brands, like, like, oh, I need to start building community. It's the era of COVID. It's the era of iOS 14.5. Where do I get started? I get that question all the time. And I'll, I'll tell you guys kind of like the short version of what I tell them, which is like, you know, chances are if you don't have a great uniting topic for your customers to rally around, you're not going to be able to build community. If you go sell used carburetors, used car parts, and you say, hey, you know, I've got the most exciting carburetor community in the world, you might get five members. If you say we're building a community for refurbished old cars, you're going to get, you're going to have something. And so it's understanding that the frame of the community is everything. And so for ours, it's music and love of music and love of experience. And so, so many brands right now are trying to figure out how do we build community? Well, you know, step one is broaden your topic. So you can kind of get the affinity group of people in your space, and then you'll see your opportunities to sell, but that's not the point. Um, community is ultimately fundamentally authentic. If you're able to drive value, and actually be thoughtful about how you serve your community, you'll go so much further. And I think a lot of like, I think a lot of how we think about it is the marbles in the jar analogy, which is, you know, whenever you do something salesy or whenever you do something that's like for your financial benefit, remove some marbles out of the jar. But every single time you put a piece of content that serves the community, every time you, you put something in front of them that answers a question, every time you have uh, a happy hour that brings people together, you put a marble back in. And so your job as a community owner and a community manager is to keep that are filled with marbles so that when you do need to take the opportunity to take marbles out, uh, you're doing so in a thoughtful way. When you're not able to be at the events, what are you doing on like a daily, weekly, or monthly basis to keep up that engagement with, with the community members? Is this like emails, Facebook groups, you guys doing phone conferences, or what does that look like to keep people hyped up and excited? Well, there's two questions there. One is um, like, what is the underlying community infrastructure we put in place? And two, what are the channels we use? So I'll start with the first. Um, community is an ongoing investment where you need to show people how to engage at every touch point. So we have a team of community managers who are responsible for welcome posts, welcoming each member personally, uh, posting three, four times a week. We actually demonstrate how to engage through how we engage. And so we basically like start to train and show people like, this is what it means to be an effective community member. And, you know, we use Facebook groups. We have active followings on effectively you know, every social platform, YouTube, um, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Um, and we basically kind of combine the, you know, the place the community lives 
usually Facebook groups, with the places that community wants to engage and where they want to be served content, which is the social platform of choice, which is, again, you know, manned by a team that's able to really understand that deeply. Um, and again, social especially is a game of talent. Uh, anybody who tells me social media is easy doesn't have the right people on their team. Um, and then the second part of it, what was the second question, Giovanni? What are you, what are you doing on like a daily kind of weekly or monthly basis to keep them engaged? I'm assuming it sounds like you're, you're posting everywhere. Is there anything else in terms of, you know, Hey, this is the big, big event next month. Who's going stuff like that. Yeah. So, so there's like three buckets. Um, the first is, you know, during the COVID pandemic, we actually threw our lunchbox fam festival and raised several thousand dollars for different groups uh, in New York and Canada that needed the support. Um, so we, you know, we do these types of digital gatherings where it's really centered around music. We'll have a DJ, bring them in and have a happy hour in a Zoom room attached to it. That's always fun. Um, we have micro groups that we like to we like to promote. So uh, we have our Lunchbox Loyalty Lab, top 10 VIP customers basically spend a two hour Zoom call with me every month talking about new product details, ideas, whatever. Um, within our Facebook groups, uh, we're generally throwing a bunch of meetups that are in person and we'll be promoting those about a month, two months out. So we're actually getting people to these different sites. And then fourth is like we're kind of finding ways to always connect people and you know, figure out like, hey, listen, if you want to go to this festival and you got other Lunchbox fan members going, people will fly across the country to go to a festival with people they've never met and they have, they'll have the best time ever because the, the, the group's values are self-selecting. Um, and those values are like, you know, one Lunchbox fam and like embrace your individuality and the little things matter. So when people have those values in common, the odds that there's going to be like that person to person fit in this setting are super high. And so again, really brokering those, those connections. And so like, you know, people ask me what the KPI is and I'm like, well, it's not a not referral rate. That is a function of doing a, a job of connection well. So for me, it's like how many connections have we made between different members of the Lunchbox fam to create an, an incrementally growing network group? It's funny, like when I hear the KPI question, I think of this Gary Vaynerchuk quote that's like, uh, he always gets, he has like this famous video that went viral of like, you know, what's the ROI of social media? And his response is like, you know, what's the ROI of your mother? And they're like, what? Uh, and he's, he's like, yeah, exactly. Like, you, like, you know, your mother's fact that you know that you're the person that you are today because of her. But like, if you're trying to assign a number to something super valuable, like it's just not going to happen. And I think you can see the same thing with social media. It's not about followers. It's about connections that you make and what comes off of that. And I can see the same thing happening with community too, especially in e-commerce where it's like everyone, e-commerce is so data-driven the last eight to 10 years where it's like, cool, I spent this, I got this, this is my margin and this is what I'm going to go and reinvest, right? Like, like in that sense, uh, whereas community, you have to be like, oh, like that's not how life works. Like people want to talk about products they like, like then you can't really measure that that well. Um, so that's a really good point. Um, the other thing I kind of wanted to ask is like, and this is just something I think about a lot too, if like everyone always talks about like build a business in your passion. And I think like that's an exact something of something that you have done so far with Lunchbox. Like I really have not like built a business around anything like crazy that I'm passionate about. Like if I did, it'd probably be a business in like mixed martial arts or like some random shit like that, uh, honestly. But cool. uh, um, the, the original question I have here is like, I heard a quote like two weeks ago that was like the easiest, easiest way to go and ruin a hobby is to try to go and monetize it. Um, and I feel like for someone like yourself, like we started this whole conversation, like you've been to over 50 festivals, you've been to hundreds of shows, like, does it get exhausting for you? Like, do you, do you find that like, if you're going to ultra, you are going in and you are just working the whole time and you're not actually like enjoying the music and party and like having fun, like you want to be doing. It's a great question. Um, so I'll start with, uh, with a quote from my grandmother, actually, uh, which has been very important in, in our family, which is, you know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I think that has been largely true. You know, my, uh, my mom growing up worked in tennis and we were a tennis family. And so there was always a lot of love there. And I kind of saw firsthand how her love of the sport was able to propel her to the 10, 12 hour days where she was able to kind of get everything that she needed to get done. So that, that was my mental model growing up for context. And so the, the, the question of, you know, do I, do I then get over events because I work in events? Past a certain level, yes, provided I don't take measures to counter that. So in 2019, when on, the, uh, on the promo wave, you know, we hit 15, 20 major events that year, promoting at each, meetups at each, influencers, uh, influence management at all. Um, it, it gets exhausting, 100%. But you still love it because it's fun and the scene is exciting and it's still novel. And then I think now my attitude is more like, what are the five or six most important events I need to be at every year? And then I'm going to basically say no to anything but the things I like the most. And so I'm getting a little bit more tailored in my own taste reactively to that. 
But at the same time, what is it? What does it mean for me to go work at a festival, right? Because ultimately, like that, that is the question. It doesn't mean I'm sitting at a booth for three days straight because we're an e-com company. We pre-sell the event. We don't sell at the event. So my job is threefold, right? It's production on site, making sure we're getting the photo, video, media that we need for the after movie, the next next bank, bank of ad or social units, whatever. The second is actually just going to host a meetup and getting to interface to people that I do genuinely love and respect, including get to spend time with my team, which is one of the joys of what I, what I do. It's like that team makes it so damn special. And then I think the third thing is just meeting community members. Uh, I'm a pretty extroverted person and I, I genuinely enjoy hearing those stories. And so when people come up and they say, hey, listen, you know, at the beginning of this year, I was contemplating suicide and the Lunchbox fam gave me a community where I kind of was able to have a conversation with myself to be, to, to be okay. Like I walk away from that and that's an extremely fulfilling conversation and a reminder of why the community matters in the first place. So I get these reinforcing messages to kind of keep going the whole way through. So the way I do it, no. And the way I select events, no. But those are both highly tailored and highly specific. If I wasn't specific about it, then I would be, I would be in a position where I would lose passion for the space. What are some of the biggest growth levers that you're looking at now going forward? You have, you have the community somewhat seems already relatively built out you have the big events you're going to is it just kind of more of hitting hitting more events is it hitting events differently or how do you go from maybe that you know seven figure mark to eight figures maybe nine down the road is there anything specifically that you're looking at so there, there are two to three major growth levers and i will describe them broadly rather than specifically Wait, can um, I, before you do can i guess on one because i feel like i know the answer to one but we've never really talked about it. I feel like it would be a great idea for your business. Sure, go. Are you going to launch an apparel brand? Because I feel like you absolutely have to. <laughs> um, I, that, that's definitely coming, but I don't know if that's one of the big three growth levers I'm thinking of. We, okay. we, we would go into apparel for no other reason than we have a series of messages that the brand needs to get out and apparel is a good way to share it. Um, but you know that that's more of a fun side project against the main business more so than the main thing, but hey, I could be wrong. Okay, fair. Um, so I think the three big levers for us are, you know, on the front end, how are we thinking about displaying lunchboxes where experiences are sold uh, rather than just as an e-com brand uh, and kind of get, getting the idea of like, what is the perfect experience of something and then joining those things. Um, and so that might be, you know, a ticket reseller that could be a big concert promoter, but how do we kind of like line in there? The second thing is thinking about, kind of uh, a little bit of paid, but specifically influencer and TikTok paid where you're really focusing on organic stories um, and really getting those into the digital sphere for a product that's very TikTok friendly. Live events in general are very TikTok friendly. Um, and then I think the, uh, the third thing is going to be um, striking up strategic partnerships with artists and festivals on the co-branding side to basically figure out, okay, like what does a Tiesto lunchbox look like and how do we pre-sell to his audience? What does a Chris Lake lunchbox look like? How do we sell to his audience? How do we plug into the merchandise backends of these different artists to make sure that we're moving volume and we're building almost like that B2B side of the business? Um, all those things are independently big projects. And so I kind of have a pecking order of how I'm going to do it. But the, uh, the main thing is that like, there are these big growth levers. There's a couple of moonshots out there because you should always be fishing. Uh, but then there are kind of some core brand building activities in addition to the core D to C business that help us to kind of get that 10, 20, 50, 300% year over year growth, uh, especially because we are still in the early days. That's really cool. And also last time we were chatting back in Denver, I think you were like a week or two before you did like an off, offsite is that the right word? An offsite like retreat with your team where like- oh, yeah. The idea sounded so cool when you were telling it to me. You're like, all right, we're all like flying out to the spot. I'm taking everyone's phones, locking them away for the weekend. And we're just going to like hang out, listen to music, chat about the company and like strategize or whatever. Uh, did it go the way you wanted it to go or, or how was the company retreat standpoint? So that was four days ago. So this is great timing. Oh, cool. um, so there, there are definitely some big learnings here. And I think the learning number one is that in the nomad world and the digital world, we don't realize how siloed relationships get. And I think the, so we were in you know, upstate New York, we had 11 people in from eight different states. Um, we had a full DJ set up in the basement where people were on the deck spinning. We basically built out the entire house. Um, you know, Friday night, it's like, wear your best tie dye. Saturday night, it's like favorite, dress as your favorite DJ. Uh, and it was just like an extremely wholesome weekend with great people. And I think there were a couple of big takeaways. Like number one is recognize that digital silos exist. And for a team that is network and cares about working together, find ways to break those 
at all costs, regardless of the expense, it's worth it. The second is, you know, we took some time this weekend to, as a group, really define and solidify what our mission and values are. You know, our mission was something that I had written two years ago with, uh, with Meredith, one of, the, one of the girls in our team, as a piece of copy, right? And we kind of like opened that up, the conversation up to the team. It's like, well, what do we believe? And really, how do we get buy-in on those things? And then the third was like a little bit of like, where do we want to go? What are we excited about? And how do we want to treat our community with, with respect? Because again, like for a community model, you have this community stewardship role where you need to always think like, not what your community what can do for you, but what I can do or what we can do for your community. And so I think being able to get together and have all these people who, you know, remember did, were digital for most of the pandemic. Um, and even, I hadn't seen like, two or three team members in two plus years. And it was just good to just look somebody in the eye and like share a moment, uh, have a meal. And the little things were just so important. So it went really well. And, you know, I would urge you guys, any of the listeners to find ways to bring your team together. The expense is always worth it, especially when great are involved. On the segment of team, could you maybe dive into a little bit on what your team actually looks at, looks like right now and what everyone's doing and where their focus is on? Sure. Um, so we kind of have like one big split down the middle of the company uh, and we kind of have marketing. Again, e-commerce is generally a marketing business, but also operations. Um, and so on the operations side, we have our COO, we've got a director of operations, we've got our CS team. CS is not a marketing function in my mind, it's an operational function supported by marketing. Um, and that's kind of like just like just on ops. On marketing side, we have a lot more headcount and a lot more specialists. Um, and so we've got uh, you know two senior marketing strategists, uh, a senior copywriter, uh, a community manager, and our influencer coordinator all under me as a CMO. Uh, I serve as our CMO and CEO. And then we kind of have a network of freelancers pull on for specialized roles like web development, um, PR, design, you know, whatever. But basically, like that's the core. And then on underneath marketing is the extended community team. So that's like three to five additional people who are admins in our Facebook group or are hosting meetups or are who are who are super engaged. And in total, um, we kind of have a uh, you know a, a good squad. The the one fun uh, addition lately was um, uh, head of HR, which I guess like, is more on the operations side, um, which is funny because she's got the hardest job in the company, which is, you know, how do you handle HR in a, uh, for a company that's, you know, guerrilla marketing in crowds and music festivals. So dude, is, is like fast forward 10 years from now, I guess, or five years, right? Uh, one of the things I like to kind of finish up a lot of these podcasts with is like, is your goal to now go and build Lunchbox into this business that's doing 50, 60, 70 million dollars per year and just crushing it. And you know, you hold on to it for the next 20, 30 years. Like is that is that the plan? Or is it no, I want to build this out into something really special and then maybe go and sell it to like a live nation or like, you know, somebody who wants to go and get into like more of the accessory space, something like that. So I think where we are is our team feels like we have the inside track on event culture right now. And we're at a position where you know our community is rapidly growing, the team is super excited. Um, there's definitely a lot of white space for us to play in, and you know th there's two ways to think about it. Like I'm actually not that financially motivated. I'm a lot more impact motivated. And so for me, if like if let's say five years from now the lunchbox fam is a hundred thousand people that we can mobilize, um, the amount of potential impact that we could have from that group. Uh, is more important than the money we're making necessarily. You know, if you do a good job, the money will come, but it's not the main driver. So, you know, I'm going to have to give you the political, I don't know yet. Um, it depends how things go, but at least in the, the short midterm, um, you know, we have a really cool thing to build. And I would be doing a disservice to my team, especially if we didn't get to see kind of like the fruits of our labors come to light after we've been, you know, we've been working on this thing for nearly four years now. And I think that, you know, when I see the passion in their eyes, when I see the passion in our community members' eyes, and when I honestly get as fired up as I do, um, there's a lot of building left to be done. And then at, at a later point, if the right opportunity presents itself where, you know, we can reach more people, I'm far biased. I'm far more willing to take that opportunity over than like, oh, we're just going to go sell the thing. It's like, it wasn't the point to begin with, right? The point, the point was, to, was to create a wave. And I think we've done that. So how do we build that wave into something even more meaningful? Not just, you know, where does the wave end up? You're running a company that's very, I don't know if I'd call it non-typical, but it's not just flat e-commerce. It's not just retail. It combines like a lot of these different aspects of you're building the community, you're selling products, you're, in, you're expanding that and going into in-person events. What are you doing personally to 
organize this, stay sane, be happy and, and kind of effectively run this company? Are you doing anything on, on like a daily basis where you're, you know, I know Connor, Connor journals a lot, for example, or we, we, we've interviewed a lot of people that, that do some sort of form of meditation or work out frequently. Is there anything that you, you can pinpoint as a necessity in your day-to-day life that really helps you stay grounded and kind of maintain focus? Yeah. You know, it's funny, um, but my friends and I call them happy habits. Uh, like what are the things that do keep you sane? And actually basically everything you mentioned is on that list. Right. So it's like, meditation to start my work day and meditation snap out of it. Connor and I have talked about that oh, yeah, extensively. Yeah. Um, so that, that's like my on and off button, which is super key. Um, stretching in the morning, lots of hydration. I'm a tennis player. I love getting on court, love getting a sweat. I run a ton. Uh, I journal a ton. I have a pretty regimented process of weekly, monthly and quarterly reviews that I kind of use to like reflect on not only just like, where am I going, but where have I been? And is that in line with what I said I wanted? So I kind of, have internal systems that are tracking my own progress. And um, the, the nice thing as well is that like, you know, because we are growing, uh, a lot of those activities are just becoming higher leverage in general. And so really making sure that like, I'm keeping myself sane and, you know, maximizing my judgment because understanding that like, if I make five bad calls over the course of a week, that's going to compound the rest of the organization. So I'm really in defense of my sanity so I can make level-headed calls that won't cause ripple effects elsewhere. And so anything that in, that's in pursuit of that is, is absolutely a priority and cannot get disrupted. You're also a very high energy person, like, 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 uh, like in a good way. Cause I feel like, um, I don't know if you're a festival C like festival company CEO and you were low energy, like that's like terrible. Uh, and also like just being the CEO of a team, like having all that energy, not only like do these habits I think make you happier they probably also like give you the energy to like go and say like oh shut like damn something just hit the fan and like as happens in every single business and like having the energy to be like cool let's step up to the plate and like let's let's solve this yeah and I also think it's about what you're consuming as well so you're right that energy creates energy uh and that's a, that's an important thing to understand the second thing is is like you know what are you consuming and, and how high integrity is the quality of that information uh, for me, I've been reading so much stoicism over the last three years. And I think like the stoic mindset has helped me to become a, a more balanced operator where if shit does hit the fan, to use your phrase, um, you know, you're like, okay, cool. Like take a deep breath, reset. And here's what we're going to do about it. And it's really understanding that key, you know, uh, epic, everything Epictetus was that was the one to coin this, but it's like, understand what you do and do not control and only, only impact the former effectively. And so recognizing that you can let those things you don't control go, that as a mindset shift is a requirement of, uh, of effective leadership. And I'm not saying that I'm an effective leader by any means. I'm still figuring it out like anybody else. But I think the, uh, the big thing is that you know, it's, one, it's one mindset to freak out when something bad happens. And it's another to look at it and able to be relatively calculated and balanced such that you can make the best decision with, inf- with the information available. I want to finish up this episode with just one last thing of the story you told me, if you're comfortable sharing on the podcast of the tattoo that you've got on your uh, left arm, I think it is, um, mm-hmm. of like, just like the story behind it. Cause I thought like I walked away from getting drinks and I was like, fuck, I kind of want that same tattoo now. Uh, but obviously, <laughs> obviously I'm not going to get the same tattoo unless like, you know, you want to get matching ones. That would be really cool. Um, but, uh, but I would love to kind of like have you tell the story. Cause I think people can take a really big lesson from it. Yeah. So one of um, one of our company values, actually, that we formalized over this past weekend is that, you know, it's like water. Like, so no matter what happens to us, we are able to react to it like water. We're formless. We, we change even as the circumstances around us change. And it was coined uh, at an event in June of 2019, where we were activating at a six to 10,000 person pool party that was a, a dirty bird event. And when we activated these things, you know, we, we generally break even on most, but it's really more about getting the brand out there and telling the story than it is about the profit. And so we, um, we go out to this pool party, we have a staff of five or six people at the event, and we set up these three or four tables, a scaffolding with lunch boxes hung up and like, you know, interactive displays and flyers everywhere. And it takes about like 20 to 30 minutes to set up well, like, you know, ready to present. Uh, the event's starting at four o'clock. We are, it's 3.45. A fire marshal comes out with a concerned look on his face. This is in Florida, by the way. And if you, if, if you guys have been to Florida, you know how inclement weather can get quite unfortunate. And he starts waving his hands at the guys on the stage and says, hey, you know, we got to go inside. We got to move this thing. Lightning on the horizon. We're like, oh, all right, fine, let's go. 
So people are now starting to stream into the, the, the hotel ballrooms where the event is. We're like shuttle running, like tables and scaffolds and chairs into the back of this room where we, we, we didn't scope it out for the event. We get set up uh, 20, 30 minutes in, the music's playing, people are streaming in. We like, we finally catch our breath. And wouldn't you know, at 4.30, the fire marshal comes back in. He's like, all right, guys, like we're going back outside. And we're like, are you kidding? Like, are you actually kidding? We're like, I'm fine. We got this. We got this. Shuttle runs back out. And by the way, it's like, it's like four or five football fields of length between the ballroom and everything else. So we're just like, I'm working up a sweat. Booming down, scaffolding, the tables. We've got the, the packs. We're also moving inventory throughout all this, by the way. Heavy boxes of 20 packs a box. We get out there. We get about an hour of sales in. All of a sudden, lightning strikes again on the side. We're just like, at this point, like people are like about to crack. You know, it's like, oh shit, oh shit. And right as we're getting ready to move back inside, we kind of pull together a huddle and our COO at the time um, kind of gets in and we're like, as a group, we're like, all right, guys, like we understand this isn't ideal. We understand this kind of sucks. Uh, we're going to do this again because our reaction is going to be like water. No matter how much rain, no matter how much lightning, we are going to adapt to whatever challenges in front of us. We are going to be like water. And that was the motto for the rest of the night. And finally enough, after that, we got set up. We were there the entire night. We, we paid the event back. Um, but from that moment, like, like water for us has always been a reminder to, no, we're going to reset and get whatever we need to get done done right now. And so now is actually one of the core values of the company is that you know, whenever bad news happens, it's like the phrase, the, the refrain, if you will, is like water. No matter what happens, we will adapt. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that story. I figured, I figured that a lot of the listeners would like it too. Is it a tattoo a... Does it say like water or what's the actual tattoo? Is it, is it it's, tramp uh, stamp? It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's on my, uh, my left bicep. It's about a, uh, like an inch or so in thickness. The band that goes all the way around and the whole thing is a wave. And then in the middle of the wave, it breaks into typography that reads like water as if, as if it's actually part of the wave. That's cool. All right. That's a pretty awesome tattoo. Tom, I feel like everyone's going to want to aggressively follow along and watch you build this behemoth of a company. Uh, where can people find you and stay up to date with everything you're doing? Uh, so in terms of Tom personal, my, uh, my Twitter handle is at T-Z-W-O-R, T-Z-W-O-R. Uh, and I tweet a lot about D2C and community. Um, and Lunchbox, you can find on, uh, on TikTok as at Lunchbox fam. And you can find us on IG as at Lunchbox Packs. Awesome, Tom. Thanks for coming on the show today, man. Thank you, guys. If you thought today's episode was awesome, we would love it if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference and lets us get cooler and cooler guests for future episodes.